Hey everyone, a bit of a spoiler here, but we need your help because we are trying to do some cycling core research and we discuss it at the end of the episode. Hopefully you get there, but just to give you the information now, the article on the protocol itself and the best way for you to complete it is in the show notes. So if you want to participate in our research project, go check out that article, go read about the protocol and go complete it and let us know how it turns out. All right, here's the episode. Go get fast. Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Todd, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, I've been able to get out and do some good rides recently, so all, all is well in my neck of the woods. What about you? Well, it is a bit smoky, and that would actually be in both of our necks of the woods. And uh, there are glimpses of green on the radar, but we are a little distance away, but still affected by the air quality. So if anyone's wondering, California is on fire right now, but not specifically in our homes. Yes, it's, uh, it is nearby, but if the wind blows the right direction, the, the air quality is sufficient for getting out for a little ride. So Todd, what are we talking about today? Not air quality, but maybe that, one, that one's for another day. We're actually going to talk about your core and how that applies to your performance. I think core is a, a hot topic. It's talked about a lot. All, all over the place. If you pick up popular press, I think it's certainly in there. I, if you look in a magazine or look online, there's a, a million different things that promise to help you strengthen your core with all sorts of purported benefits. And we're going to focus on cycling. And does having a stronger core affect your cycling performance positively, or does having a weak core potentially negatively affect your performance? We're, I'm going to take a very biomechanical and research oriented approach to this and try to answer that question. And we'll go through, we'll discuss some of these things. Uh, we have four studies here that I looked at to try to answer this question. And we'll all link those out in the show notes. We've talked about core, we've, we've both said it, I think on multiple episodes, spending some time doing some core work is important. So we at least believe that that has value. So hence a little bit deeper dive into the research to answer that question. And I think a big point here is does it prevent injury? Does it improve performance? Like, why should we do core? It is probably beneficial, but let's dive in a little more into, you know, some science that actually tells us what's going on a little bit better. And if you look at in the research, not just popular press, but if you look in the research, there's a ton of research around sport performance, injury prevention, core, all these things, a ton, ton of research. Uh, the first paper that I looked at, and there's older papers that are specific to cycling, I would say cycling's in the minority. They, they love to talk about every other sport, especially field sports, but there are a few cycling studies. The first one is a 2007 paper. It's out of the University of Pittsburgh. And they did a pretty simple intervention where they observed biomechanics of cyclists. And then what they'd had them do is do a number of core-related exercises. So I don't recall the exact protocol, but you could imagine planks and side planks, sit-ups, what have you to fatigue their core muscles. And what they're trying to do is simulate the effect of having a weak core. We all know if where we work our muscles, they get tired, they get a little bit weaker, a little bit fatigued. And then they had them get back on, get on the bike and observe their biomechanics in the, the weakened or fatigued state of the core. And what they noted was that there was a change in the mechanics of their cycling, of their pedal stroke. It, what was interpreted to be in a negative fashion. The, it wasn't as crisp or smooth of a pedal stroke. However, they noted that 
from a performance standpoint, when we talk about power output, there was no significant change. So yes, it changes your mechanics, but no, it doesn't change your power output and thus not your performance. So I think it's an interesting place to start from, but I know Jason, you have some some thoughts on this yeah, so particular I'm also, paper. I'm also familiar with this paper and I actually spoke to uh, Professor McDaniel, who I believe I've talked about before on this podcast. And I asked him, is this a valid study? Is this a good study? And one issue that was brought up was, does fatiguing someone's core really simulate a weak core? So they took these athletes and actually I'm going to sort of backtrack and talk about what the exercises were and what they essentially did was they uh, they had the athlete sort of stand there and move their rib cage over their pelvis like you could think of core strength as connecting the pelvis to the rib cage and so a lot of the exercises were you know lean the rib cage to the side and then bring it back to the center or lean forward bring it back so you can imagine core strength is controlling the movement of the rib cage over the pelvis and then there were other exercises that were moving the pelvis while keeping the rib cage constant and so you can see for cycling there is this pelvic movement there is this rib cage movement and there could be some benefit to firming up that connection and there are other sports like i think baseball and golf are great examples where you actually want to be able to whip your rib cage you know strongly in order to produce more power and so for those sports there's it's a different use of the core and in cycling we just want to stabilize we don't want things to move because we'll get better power transfer uh, theoretically and I think this is an interesting study because they did, they they measured their biomechanics, they fatigued them, then they looked at their biomechanics again, and although there was no power difference, there was a biomechanical difference, and it sort of begs the question, we know that biomechanical inefficiencies are related to injury on the bike. For example, knee pain in a nonlinear knee, if you look at the knee from the front when you're pedaling and it moves side to side throughout the pedal stroke, that's an indication that there's a higher likelihood of knee pain in that patient. And if you are able to make their knee more linear, they're less likely to have injury. So could core strength be related in that respect? It's interesting. And this study is, is a good start, um, but it is difficult to have two groups of people and objectively measure their core strength and say, okay, this is the strong core group. This is the weak core group. Can we compare their biomechanics or can we compare their force production? There's there's a lot of variables that go into these performance metrics, and that could be one difficulty of researching this area. And I think there's a challenge that we have to define. What exactly does a strong core mean? And does it mean different things, say, for a cyclist as it does for a golfer? And I, I would argue that, yes, that, that does. We probably shouldn't be testing a, a golfer in the same way we should be testing a cyclist because the needs of their core are very different to achieve the highest performance in their sport. So I, I think there's a lot of questions out there and I'm gonna actually fast forward a decade here on the research. So we talk about 20, 2007 paper that's doing that particular research and we're gonna go all the way to 2017. We're gonna take a hop across the Atlantic Ocean and go to Europe. And in this particular study, we're looking at high level cyclists. So. Uh, all male, so there is a limitation here. Uh, so it's juniors, uh, U23, and then some senior, senior level riders. Uh, average VO2 max in this group is 65. They all had at least five years of training 
And in the last season, they all rode at least 12,000 kilometers. So these are pretty experienced, fit riders that we're talking about here. These are like Cat 2, maybe Cat 1 even. Yep, exactly. So they're these are pretty high-level riders. And uh, one of the things I love about this paper, so 2017 is not that long ago, one of the comments they make in the writing is sort of the rationale for doing paper. There is a lack of empirical evidence that core has anything to do with injury risk or performance. Okay, well, that's pretty. That's a pretty big statement. And so that when I was like in their introduction. Yep. Okay. Well, set, setting the tone there. So what they did, and you, you called this out, but the other says, well, okay, how do we know somebody has a strong or weak core? And what they used to determine that, rather than say a plank test or anything of the like, they used something that's called a functional movement screen. And what that is, is it was developed by a couple of physical therapists and athletic trainers here in the US. They look at a set of seven different movements and then assign you a score, one, two, or three, based on your competency. So three means that you did the movement as it was designed. Two means you complete the movement, but it wasn't perfect. It's like it's passable, but maybe there was something lacking there. And then a one is that you you didn't complete the movement. And they actually do have a zero. Uh, seldom does anybody get a zero. But a zero in their mind for this particular test is that you had some sort of pain while you were doing the movement. Hmm, I think that's good to have a zero, though. I think you need it. I think you need it to have the right range. And so I've, I've used this in my practice personally. And one of the things I do find is that people tend to cluster around the middle quite a bit. And you, you don't see the full range of scores. So you don't see a lot of, say, sevens. You don't see a lot of 21s. You see a lot of 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, that range. Mm. And that was similar to, so it's just, I'm gonna call it out as a limitation of the tool, uh, is that, well, the, the range of scores isn't very wide, so. Okay, so just to that, clarify, it's you add up these seven tests. So the maximum possible score is 21. And the minimum that would be a, a perfect score. score. Yep. And then the, the worst score is a zero out of 21. That's correct. Yes. And then you're also saying that most people will clump at that 13 to 15, 13 to 16 range. And so it's hard to say how much worse someone who gets a 14 is than someone who gets a 15. Right. And so they, there is some uh, gradation there. And their cutoff to say is that a 14 is is like the minimum good score, basically, which is two across the board. But obviously, there's other ways to get to 14. You could have a three and a one to get to 14. Mm -hmm. So uh, average of two across each test, get you 14, and that's considered to be good. And so that's actually the cutoff that these researchers used in their studies. Uh, they broke the groups into uh, less than 14 and more, or 14 and above. But I believe their total range for the entire sample was 12 to 18. That's the one of the limitations here. And that's interesting that all of the athletes in the study were within six points, even though the test goes to, you know, zero to 21. You know, how much bucketing is there? That's the term that a data analyst would use is you have to, they're bucketing these people into two groups. And so rather than taking it as a timeline, like a discrete position for each individual, they're sort of just cutting it in half and saying, you're in the weak core bucket, you're in the strong core bucket. Right, right. And again, some of that's the limitation of the grading methodology of the test. I can tell you that 
when you do the test, there are a lot of twos. Two is the, the bell curve. There's a lot of range. Two has a lot of range. One is pretty obvious and three is hard to, hard to come by. So you, it, the test by its known nature almost drives you towards a 14 unless you have pretty significant deficits. Okay, that's good. Or less. And so, so what, uh, what were the results? So what you find is that you find a couple of things, generally speaking, and then you find a couple of things when you start to split the groups. So what they did to test the athletes is they did what you're used to doing for a VO2 max test. So an incremental power test where every couple of minutes you increase by 25 watts until you fatigue. And what they found is that once you got above threshold across the board, all the cyclists tended to shift relatively forward on the seat and relatively forward with their center of pressure. I think that's normal. I think we, we experienced that as cyclists and that, that didn't matter on the group, whether you were in the strong group or the you know, weaker group, however you want to assign that. And that actually reminds me of, you know, on the rivet, the expression mm -hmm. that comes from old saddles that had rivets to connect the leather to the metal. And on the rivet means you're sitting on the rivet at the front, at the nose of your saddle. That's, it's, a, it's an expression for high intensity. And, you know, we know that riders scoot forward at high intensity. So there's kind of that connection between the expression and this sort of ubiquitous movement at high intensity. Yep. And so it's been, it's been documented, it's been observed, not in scientifically uh, using fine biomechanical instruments to do it. You also see under more load that an increase in sway. So both anterior posterior, so you think rocking forward and back, actually, to be fair, in all planes, they, they know to increase sway, but truly the most notable ones were the anterior posterior and the medial lateral. So fore and aft, like the axis around the bottom bracket and then side to side, twisting you know, across the top tube, if you will. So they were, they were actually twisting back and forth rather than dropping one hip and then dropping well, the other hip. I mean, that's, that's the, they didn't specify what the action was. They just said generally okay. it was more medial lateral sway. So yes, it could be dropping the hip. It could be rocking the shoulders from side to side, but either way, the, the weight was shifting from side to side more. And that's something that, load. I mean, you you observe that when you watch professional cyclists as well, they have a lot more pelvis movement as they fatigue and as the intensity increases. Right. And you noted this, uh, recent pre-lap when we talked about uh, standing pedaling, that there was this significant shift from side to side that may have been efficient, in fact. Yeah, the, it's actually the vertical movement out of the saddle mm. that is the most efficient part, but there is this side to side shift where you're able to get over top of the pedal. You get better power transfer if your uh, leg can move directly over the pedal. So there may be some underlying motor pattern where we actually shift over to push on the pedal with a little bit better line of action. So what they did find though, despite my critique about how tightly the scores bunch is that there was some correlation between a lower score, so which a lower score in this case means theoretically less core strength and more sway, both in the AP anterior posterior and medial lateral directions as you were fatigued. So there's something there that perhaps you, and it's, it was actually a pretty nice uh, linear relationship that, well, 
with the regression line. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't crazy bad. Like the fit was pretty good on the line that they plotted through the through the scores and the amount of sway that they observed. So I guess it's intuitive. We know that their hips move more, but I think the question on all our minds is was the power different? Was was there some quantifiable performance difference across the core strengths? So they didn't no. That's the we're back we're back in the same place. Okay. So they don't they don't know or did they just not test it? So they 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 only they didn't look at it in that way. They looked at what happened under the same under the power. The power was like the constant. Okay. And the sway was the variable. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, who's the current world record holder? Uh, Kempanertz, right? Mm -hmm. He moves so much on his saddle. And like as a time trialist, we always, it's sort of this idea that you're this, this rock, you know, you're a statue as you're riding your upper body has no movement. And that guy moves so much and his hips move all the time. You can tell his, you know, his torso is rocking and he's also the hour record holder. So... He's doing something right and it just i'm still not convinced that core strength is is really what we need to focus on in our performance so uh, a similar study by the same group they looked at a different set of variables they looked at pedal smoothness and uh, pedal effectiveness so positive pressure versus negative pressure and, and same they used the fms again as their tool to determine whether athletes were strong or weak in terms of core. They observed similar pattern, less rotational movement. And again, they, they're very similar. They tend to, this particular study skewed younger a little bit, more juniors in U23 uh, than the other one. Okay. But again, similar setup in terms of experience with the riders. Again, it's all male riders. So we can't really comment on does core strength matter for female riders. We can estimate and say, well, maybe, but we can't say definitively. Uh, if we would observe these things in female riders since we didn't test them. So interestingly, they didn't observe any effect on uh, pedal smoothness or effectiveness under load or whether or not the, whether you were in the strong or the weak core group, it didn't seem to matter. They did note that there was a little bit less asymmetry side to side. So like that pedal balance you know, 50, 50, mm -hmm. there was less movement away from 50, 50 in the strong core group, but that was the only observation they were able to make mm. that was significant. So, okay. Again, maybe we start to say, Hmm, do these things contribute to injury risk? If you're weaker, your pedal stroke becomes more asymmetrical under load. You move more under load. Could these things contribute to you having pain? And there's no study I found that was actually a systematic review. I applaud these officers for doing this because they must have gone through a ton of papers to find cycling-specific ones. Uh, they were looking specifically at low back pain and what they found as the factors for contributing to low back pain in cyclists was, quote, core muscle imbalance. I didn't have the full text, so I don't know exactly what that means. It's probably a, a term from uh, another paper that they were citing and a prolonged flexed position as the contributory factors for low back pain. So prolonged flexion, you're hunched forward over the bike. Who knows if that's from the core muscle imbalance or if that's just a bad fit or lack of flexibility somewhere. 
Um, and then the core muscle imbalance. Okay, I guess I can get behind. I could line that up with the results from the prior two studies I talked about. Say, okay, well, maybe these things are related. That's not crazy to think. That's not like, that's not a crazy leap of faith for me as a clinician and understanding anatomy. So, okay, this this maybe has some weight. It would be awesome if the folks in the first study followed up with all these athletes six months, 12 months, 18 months later, and simply asked them, have you had any overuse injuries? Not, not traumatic injuries, just overuse injuries to see if the folks in the weaker core group did have more injuries than the not weak core group. So to sort of summarize the, the meta-analysis basically said this muscular imbalance is related to lower back pain. Right. And then and prolonged flexion. So maybe it's fit or flexibility that could contribute. Okay. Or it could, or could be core muscle imbalance. Right? You could end up in a flex position because you don't have the core muscle strength to maintain a neutral spine. Yeah, that's a good point. And back to the, the efficiency paper, the one on uh, pedaling efficiency of these junior and younger riders, I think it's important to note that we're trying to see differences in core strength as a metric for some sort of cycling performance. And if we don't see a correlation between them, it could be that the most important factor is just so significant that you can't see a significant difference with core strength. Like, for example, hamstring utilization could be the big indicator of how efficient your pedal stroke is. And the core strength of the athletes gets muddied by that individual's hamstring utilization, which may be caused by, you know, lifestyle factors or some other item. So it's not that core strength doesn't contribute. It's just that there are other confounding factors that could be more significant. And that's kind of the same thing, but it basically sort of hints to us that there are probably bigger items on our checklist to improve cycling efficiency than the core. Right. And I think the other thing that's important about all these studies is that they were observational in nature. We didn't, in any of these studies, have a core strengthening intervention and observe pre and post and say, ah, you know what, your performance is improved or your performance didn't change after we did this core strengthening intervention. And therefore, at least these core exercises we don't think contribute to your performance in any way. Uh, so good news though, I did find a study that talked about that and did exactly that. And we'll talk about the results and figure out if it matters and how much it might matter for us. So right. I'm interested. This, this is actually somebody's dissertation uh, that I found on Google Scholar. So and this is like the their final paper for their PhD. Uh, yeah, actually, it was um, a chiropractic student. So they were doing their doctor of chiropractic medicine. Okay. And so anyhow, that's a, you know, another physical medicine practitioner. So that piqued my interest. And uh, I said, oh, I got to read this paper and check it out, see what they're talking about here. And I think it's actually a pretty good study design. I think there are some limitations into how we apply it and what we make of it. So the previous studies I was talking about were all fairly high-level riders. These are high-level juniors, and they're younger riders as well, juniors U23. Now, with these folks, uh, much wider age range from 20 to 50, and uh, not quite as elite. Uh, their average training volume 
was I didn't have a kilometers per year metric that wasn't reported. They're reported in hours per week. So they're talking about six to 10 hours per week. And they had a couple, what they called elite. I'm not quite sure what they define that as. That wasn't clear. But I think most of these were what they called serious amateur level riders. So I'm taking that to be maybe your cat three, four. Just, to me, this felt more like weekend warrior type riders. Well, Todd, I, I take this to be us, like our target audience. Um, this is very beneficial to our least our listeners. Don't uh, you know? Don't disparage them. Fair, fair. It, I would not apply this to a, an elite racer, perhaps the result. Sure. But I think that it's, would... it is perfect for us. I think, and especially our listeners, it seems like it's the right group to study. And they said one to five years experience cycling was the the mean. And in terms of, they didn't do any VO2 max testing. They did report the mean BMI of the athletes was 24.6. So there, there you go. This is a, a wide range, six to 10 hours a week training uh, and relatively novice one to five years experience riders who are doing some, some racing, but not professionals by any stretch. So there's 42 riders. So this is a good sample. And these are folks that had no low back pain. That was an exclusionary factor if you'd had low back pain. So take that with a grain of salt. I don't know how they found those people given low back pain is such a common condition, both in the population as a whole, but also in cyclists. So it's, um, it's rare to find, but they found people with no low back pain. So they, good. They just surveyed a lot of people and, uh, and had to exclude quite a few of them. So here's what they did. They. What they measured for their performance metric was a, a 1.5 kilometer time trial. So I think this is one of the limitations is that specific test doesn't measure cycling performance for a lot of riders. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty, pretty short duration. So if you race the kilo or something, or you race the pursuit, then maybe this looks like what you do. If you race a road race, this maybe looks like part of what you do, but not. it might not inform you what you should be doing for your core to be really strong for a four-hour ride. Well, it's interesting. I think I understand the reasoning for why they would use that test metric because your core should be more influential in your performance at higher intensities. Imagine if you're riding in zone one, you can just plop down on your saddle. You don't need any stability between your rib cage and your pelvis. You can just ride around. And we notice this more, this greater amount of rocking. We notice, you know, more movement in the saddle at higher intensities. And so they picked something where they said, we can get a big response from our subjects with some time control. And I, I assume they didn't do 10 seconds because that would just be chaos. Like it would be way too noisy to actually get data. And so I understand this 90 to two minute effort. It seems like a good opportunity to see what are what are the mechanics at high intensities? Sure. Uh, my counterpoint would be you need to do that effort after you've already ridden for two, three, four hours, depending on what type of event you're doing. So, or you need to do that multiple times within your event. Right? You, have, you have several two minute hard efforts that make up your race because I don't think overuse injuries are happening in that 1.5 kilometer hard effort. I think they're happening over the course of many, many hours in the saddle. So it is, it is what it is. I think there's 
more to be learned here, at least in terms of how we test core. But none, nonetheless, what, what happened? That's, that's what you want to know. Yep. So they had a, a test protocol or an exercise protocol they did for four weeks, so specific core exercises. I'll get to that. They did all of these exercises 10 times, 10 repetitions for 10 seconds, and you, they were holds. So the exercises were a standard glute bridge, a plank, a side plank on either side, and then the bird dog exercise. So your quadruped, and then you're lifting up your hand and then the opposite leg and extending them out so that they're horizontal. And so you did each of these exercises 10 times for 10 seconds, and that was your assignment for the day. So if I did my math right, that is 500 seconds of active time, and you have some rest time in there. So I, I figured it was going to be about 10 minutes or so of exercise time that you'd have to put in to do this type of a protocol, depending on how much you rested in between each uh, each exercise. Well, that's just like our dynamic stretching protocol from that one preem lap. It's, it's 11 minutes. Like, can you spare 11 minutes before your workout? And if there are positive results here, 10 minutes, that's not bad for a, a core protocol that you're supposed to be doing. How many times a week did they do it? So I didn't, I didn't see that. That paper was so long. I'm going to imagine it was four to five. Yeah, I would but guess similarly. I yeah. can, I can, I can go, I can go back and try to find that uh, if you really, really want to know. I'll put it or in we the show the notes. Paper. Yeah. So either, either way. So it was, it was only four weeks. So that was a pretty quick intervention. I mean, this is a lot quicker than any of the other train type of interventions we talk about, uh, or at least that's like the minimum duration is to do something for four weeks. Oh, do this train, do these intervals for four weeks. That's kind of the minimum to do anything in terms of finding an effect. Yeah. And physical therapy, they say four to eight weeks. So four weeks yep. is the minimum that you could possibly imagine some, some training response or stimulus would occur. So then they looked at a, a bunch of parameters for outcomes. They looked, of course, at the power output, speed, time to completion. They looked at cadence. They also assessed rate of perceived exertion and uh, heart rate for the effort. So there's, there's a, lot, a lot there, right? So ready? Okay. They got faster. Yay. Great. Fantastic. They saw improvements in speed. Improvements in power, those those make sense. Those have to go together, right? Mm -hmm. Improvements in their cadence, a reduction in their completion time. Okay, well that goes with the speed and power part. Yep. But these these are interesting. This is this is actually where it gets really interesting for me. Um, across the board, when they averaged it, a reduction in the rate of perceived exertion, so the effort felt easier for the riders, and a reduction in the heart rate to complete the task. So that's cool, right? That's a cool performance benefit to complete the same task with lower heart rate. Yeah. Interestingly, when you split the cohorts between the older and younger group, and so they split at 36, because that was halfway through their age range, the younger group was really not that much change in heart rate, but a big change in the rate of perceived exertion. And then the reverse was true of the older group, which is to say those that were in the master's athlete class, they saw much more reduction in heart rate. And by much more, I mean, that was the more observable measure, the statistically significant measure was the reduction in heart rate. And really the rate of perceived exertion was not changed. So if you ask the older athletes, they said, oh, I felt about the same, but you look at their heart rate, it was actually lower. If you ask the younger athletes, they told you it was easier, but their heart was the same. So it's just an interesting observation. Mm. I don't know if there's much to make of that other than 
you know, it's interesting. You'd have to really think about that. And I'm not so sure we should dig into that part. We should dig into the fact that they got faster. That's very cool. And their power was up about 10% for that effort. Wow. And so that, that netted them about 10 second improvement over the duration of that effort, which that's pretty big. That's a pretty significant change. And so w uh, were there other training parameters or did they just ask them to do their regular workouts? No, this was the only intervention. It's wow. pretty clean. Re again, relatively speaking, they saw a relatively bigger change in the uh, older group with these parameters for performance. So for power and time change, time reduction, uh, for, if you look at it as a percentage, the older group saw a little bit better improvement uh, relative to the younger group. So. And I think that makes sense. I, I think as you get older, you you sort of reinforce these patterns that maybe de-emphasize your core. And uh, I, I think I notice a lot of younger athletes, they'll, they'll have good core engagement, they'll have good posture, they'll have a lot of these um, characteristics of a good athlete. And then I think all of us, as we get older, we start to lose our posture, lose our core strength, things like that. So getting that back, I could see a bigger benefit for, for older athletes. So... There you have it. There's your 10 minute protocol to improve your performance by, you know, approximately 10% in a 1.5 kilometer time trial in four weeks time. All right. Yeah. Doctors hate him. Thanks, Todd. <laughs> uh, so no, I think it's, I think it's super interesting to think that something that simple, uh, it's, it's funny to compare and contrast some of those studies because the observational studies were so complex and the biomechanical equipment and the cameras and the force plates and all the stuff that they did to measure this little bit of sway and say, well, there's this correlation between core strength and uh, these you know, biomechanical parameters. And then this study is essentially very simple. Let me measure your power output and time to completion. Go home and do these simple exercises for four weeks. Come back. Let's test it. Lo and behold, you got better. We, we have reason to believe that doing core exercises improves your performance. Well, you can tell the authors of the last paper wanted to answer this question. They absolutely set up their experiment to say, does core strength improve? And absolutely. let's go over the protocol again. So 10% increase in, you know, two minute power, basically. Thereabouts, yeah. And so all they did for four weeks, four to five times a week, they did a 10 minute protocol. So let me see if I remember this correctly. 10 sets of 10 seconds of plank, side plank, glute bridge, and bird dog. Yep. You got the, I guess, four, four exercises, five, because side plank goes on both sides. Yeah. So there would be five total, and it was 10 sets. Is that correct? 10 sets of 10 seconds. Uh, or 10 repetitions at 10 seconds. How, 10 times for each exercise, however you want to, if you want to call them sets or reps, I suppose it doesn't make too much of a okay, difference. Okay. So 20, 20 total exercise protocols throughout those four weeks and they saw a 10 percent increase in their high intensity efforts yeah so I, that's big that's a big deal so this this feels like a reasonable n equals one experiment to take on actually yeah absolutely this is so applicable at home i mean we don't this isn't an n equals one this is n equals everyone who's listening should do this and tell us what happens because i'm i'm absolutely going to try this and i todd i hope you do too it just seems so easy. It's it's 40 minutes a week split over 
four or five days of that week. It takes 10 minutes. I've also been doing the dynamic stretching before all of my workouts. That feels so much better. I feel a lot stronger on the bike. I feel a lot more flexible, a lot less uh, lower back pain. This seems like right down the same course of, do you have 10 minutes in your day to include this? And you know, the best athletes are the ones who are willing to put in that 10 minutes and they're willing to, you know, oh, I'm watching Netflix. I should be stretching my hamstrings or my hip flexors right now. It's the people who are willing to do just that little extra thing and they see that performance benefit. I mean, 10% is no joke. So it's 10 minutes a day for 10%. That's pretty good. And if you, if you want to see improvements, this is the Performance Cycling Podcast. We want to see improvements in our performance. This seems just like such an intuitive option to go for it. Yeah, and I think, look, this is a good starting point. I, I have so many more research questions about this in terms of duration. You, you know, you caught my, my sense earlier is I wonder, what ha- I wonder what happens to your stability, strength, performance over longer durations. But also, so you did this for four weeks. You got 10% better at this task. How long does that take to wash out? And what happens if you did this for a year? Would you get 20% better or do you keep 10%? What happens there? So I think a lot, there's a lot more that we could learn about this, but I feel like not, not just N equals one. I like your point. Maybe, uh, maybe this needs to be the, uh, performance cycling research podcast and we'll just do uh, a bunch of IRB approvals and uh, do, do research through our podcast, through our listenership. Yeah, we can uh, crowdsource uh, athletics research to uh, to the listeners. So, hey, if any of you do choose to do this, uh, please you know document it as much as you can. We'd love to hear how your experience went. Did you feel better? Obviously, it is hard to do really objective testing when we're all at home. You could, before the protocol, go out and smash your favorite two-minute climb and see what kind of time you get. Do this for four weeks smash it again and you know post both on strava you know if we see a 10 second improvement 20 second improvement in your time that would be amazing and um yeah i i guess i'll be doing the same thing yeah i can do that or if you have a smart trainer that's another option is to set up a a 1.5 kilometer course or thereabout or however you or simulate a, a climb in your area and do it that way as well depending on what your what your options are if you have something available to you and then see see what happens a month later. All right, very cool. So Todd, do you have, that was the last study. Do you have any other comments on it? No, I think it's super interesting study. I think it's applicable to a, a lot of riders. There's probably still a few open questions there. I think especially would that work for an elite rider would be one particular question. Hmm. I guess we don't have to answer that. Um, there's, there's people who get paid a lot more than we do to try to figure those things out. So. Uh, we'll we'll leave that for now, and of course, those are also the hard studies to do. How do you convince an elite rider to partake in your your research study? And there's only so many of them out there. Yeah, I do think though that this study is a great opportunity for other researchers to take this paper and say, "I want to do this again, but I want them to ride their bike for an hour or two hours before we do the test." Or, you know, I want the I want the, to do eight weeks instead of four weeks, or I want only elite amateurs, like cat two only rather than, you know, cat three, four. So this is a good starting point and you always need that starting point in order to justify whoever's funding the study or whatever lab you're working in. Hey, let's, 
we saw some good results. Let's try them ourselves and tweak it a little bit so it caters to our specific interest. And with good science, you also need to replicate the result. Somebody else needs to go out or even us to a certain degree with our you know, listeners, whoever else goes to try and replicate that this actually happens for us. Yes, I did this protocol and you know what? I did see an improvement in my two minute time. That's that's real. That's not just, that could just been this sample that did that um, as opposed to more generalizable. So it also needs to be replicated and validated in that way as well. All right, so let's go over the protocol. We're all gonna find a two minute climb or we're gonna set a 1.5 kilometer course on our smart trainer. We're gonna do it as hard as we can after a rest day and see what kind of time we get. And then we're gonna do this protocol four to five times per week for four weeks. We went over the protocol, it's planks, side planks, both sides, bird dog, which is lifting the opposite arm and leg, and glute bridges. Those are the five exercises. Offer 10 repetitions of 10 seconds. It's a 10 minute protocol for four weeks, four to five times per week. And then go smash that same climb or do that same course on your smart trainer. And I hope we see 10% improvements. That would be great. Yeah. And I think there, I will say, I think there is something nice about it being a, a local climb that you do on a regular basis because that'll eliminate any effect of uh, any learning effect of the test. If it's, if you go find a new two minute climb and you do it the first time and then you come back again later, a month, a month later, some of that effect might just be from your familiarity with the climb. Like, you know, oh, when I pass that stop sign, I just have 30 more seconds. Uh, if it's something you're familiar with and you've done a hundred times, then we can eliminate that effect from being the driving factor to improvement. Absolutely. So if you like the show, please give us a review. Please share with your friends. Let's see how many people we can get involved in our crowdsource study. And uh, Todd, if you have anything else. Well, hopefully go out there and do the protocol and let us know how it, how it goes. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.